everyone, and welcome to another inspiring episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Ali McCluskey. Today, I'm privileged to be joined by Jason Wang, founder and CEO of Altruist, self-proclaimed math geek, investment systems developer, and an all-around super genuine and mission-driven company builder. His latest company, Altruist, is an all-in-one digital platform for registered investment advisors, RIAs, and their clients that helps make financial advice more efficient, more affordable, and accessible to more people. Using Altruist, advisors have cutting-edge tools on an investment platform that significantly streamlines and reduces their costs, enabling them to serve more people better. Jason started Altruist in 2018 after a string of multiple successful ventures in the financial advisory and retirement space, including his own RAA, Retirement Wealth Advisors, and a quantitative computer-driven asset manager called Formula Folios, which we talk more about. He started his career at Morgan Stanley, working on investment research and asset management systems development, but was constantly reflecting on how little his work affected the everyday investor. I won't spoil the rest of his journey between then and now, but you'll come to see why Altruist became his way to help tens of millions of people by helping thousands of financial professionals. We talk about a whole host of things, including how the space has evolved over the decades he's been a founder in financial advice and wealth management, and how he was able to get more efficient with each new company, where he stands on the human advice versus robo-advisory trade-off, and why Altruist only works for RAI firms, how he cold solicited the top 10 financial advisors to watch on LinkedIn as part of customer discovery, building a dreamy, in his words, group of board members, including Wharton alum and former chairman and CEO of Vanguard, Bill McNabb, who initially put Altruist on our radar during his episode. So thank you so much again, Bill, and be sure to check out his episode, which I've linked in the show notes. We also talk about attracting folks to the challenge of taking on two major incumbents, controlling 80 plus percent market share, and each with $100 billion valuations, why Altruist's people quotient centers on kindness, brilliance, and grit, and a whole host of other life lessons. So with that, let's jump in. Jason, welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I am thrilled to have you here in Philly for one of our first back in real life recordings. How are you? How's it been to be here? Uh, I'm great. And this is uh, actually my first time ever in Philly. So what a cool thing to be able to do and be in the city again, like in the middle of how crazy the world's been the last 18 months. Yeah, I hear you and I'm with you. Well, I feel particularly honored to be recording with you this week because if I'm not mistaken, it's Altruist's third birthday. Is that right? Yeah, actually. Yeah. So, so yesterday, there's a little debate like internally, like when was our first day, but since I think I was the one who started the company, I'm pretty sure I, I'm declaring <laughs> September 15 as our launch date. So, and yeah, three years ago, 2018, September 15 was kind of the, uh, the, the start of it all. There you go. I think if being the founder gives you anything, it's definitely the right <laughs> to have final say on the birthday. So I hope that means that we're also catching you at a particularly reflective time and oh, yeah. that this episode can serve as sort of a time capsule for Altruist as we look back for the years to come and sort of hear about this stage of your journey. So you've had a really interesting career path leading up until Altruist. So I would love to dive into that a little bit more because you've had so many different takes on the retirement and wealth management spaces from a couple different angles. And I think to use your words, you've gotten more efficient at it along the way. So how does a guy from small town Michigan become a serial financial services entrepreneur? How did you do that? What are the major inflection points? What sort of sticks out? Sure. So uh, a favorite to unpack, but I, I will say a very reflecting kind of time. I, I spent like five and a half hours on the airplane actually really thinking a lot about like, wow, like these three years, but it, it actually took me then like back 17, 18 years when I started my first sort of wealth management practice. And uh, yeah, the, like going even further back, I'll keep it short, but like some really, really important things like for me early in my life were like, I had the most unbelievably supportive mother like a kid could ever have. Um, I'm kind of like emotional about it because I'm expecting a child in the next month myself. That's I'm amazing. thinking about like, you know, how do you instill um, like this belief in young person that they can do anything in the world they want, right? But my mom had that like- uh, Unconditional love. Yeah, well, and, and genuinely like, if I was like, yeah, I'm gonna, you know, yeah, be an astronaut as cliche as it sounds like, she would be like, absolutely, you'd be the best astronaut ever. Like, let's like go read some right. books on like becoming an astronaut. So way back, you know, the very earliest parts of my life, but I can remember I had like incredibly supportive people. Uh, and then like the era that I grew up in was kind of a fun era. I 
finished high school and went to college in the late 90s during like the first really big sort of tech boom. Back yeah, then, of course. Funny. We didn't call it tech, we called it the dot com. Uh, like ages me a bit. What is uh, this internet yeah, thing? It's, yeah, it's really weird. Like that you can like yeah interact with people all over the world in real time. So, but it was a really exciting time because it connected the world and uh, in a way that had never been done. And it made people from small towns in West Michigan like start to think very differently than what you think if you just saw what you could see sort of localized. And that gave me like these really big visions of having like a massive, again, dot-com, which I guess today we call a tech company, like that I could do something that would make like, this bigger impact than I could ever make, like being in a little farm town in West Michigan. So that's kind of like the setting the stage stuff. A lot of serendipitous things. I'll say that I was very lucky on a, a lot of levels to have met some of the right people at the right times, uh, get certain opportunities and doors open. But in getting into like wealth management, total accident. I was a computer science kid, like, you know, that happened to sort of come of age when the, that dot-com like boom like eventually burst. So yeah, history lesson for those who didn't pay close attention to that era. You know, as exciting as the late 90s were, the early 2000s were pretty miserable. Um, there was for sure. a gnarly recession. Um, and a lot of these dot-coms, dot-coms became like, you know, like kind of like puns, you know, for, for like the excess of that era. But if you had like those same skills, right, like a lot of the computer science, mathematics skills, those were very transferable into finance, which actually had a very, you know, kind of, right uh, time, especially people trying to get away from like the investment banking boom tied to dot-com and get into like more traditional things like asset management, wealth management, and so forth. So, right. That's all I got. Broadly applicable, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you've been manifesting for a long time. I'm something like <laughs> Very accidental. You look back now and it's like, seems like it all makes sense, but I can assure you that when I was like 22 years old, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing, but I was very ambitious and the timing was good to start to, you know, go do important big things. Yeah. I mean, you said it really well that it seems like it's all connected now. And I, when I was, you know, looking into your background, there seems to be a number of underlying threads throughout. And your focus on sort of the financial advisor space seems to have rung true. So talk about getting into that business in the early days, sort of how is it, you know, remarkably different now and how is it still exactly the same? Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so my first um, exposure was I, I was... I don't know like this is true, right? We have to do like, some fact checking, even, even for myself. But I remember like my, the people who hired me at Morgan Stanley said I was their youngest employee in the world at the time. They had about 50,000 employees and I was 19. So I, I think there's a good chance that's true, but you know, who knows? But I got started at a really young age and my first exposure to like capital markets was essentially that the things I was brought in to work on and a lot of the people that I met who were incredibly bright. I learned so many things from but most of our work was actually for extremely wealthy people or for um, proprietary capital, so like the actual firm's money. And I couldn't help but pretty quickly um, you know, start to think about where I was from and going, there's no way anybody that I had ever met in my life up to that point you know, would ever have access to that kind of wealth management um, right. and even investment management. Like it was just not accessible. So... You know, it didn't take me long to start thinking about like how could I take some of these experiences, which I felt really privileged and very lucky to to have, and do work that could more broadly impact like normal people, people that were like the people I grew up with, uh, family friends, and you know, um, and people that that didn't have twenty million dollars, for example, which was a pretty common minimum for some of the the higher net worth um, practices in both asset management and uh, and wealth management. So, so I. I, I uh, very much appreciated my time at, at Oregon. It was an incredible place to learn. Can't think of actually a better spot for me at that time now in hindsight. But it, it made me think about um, uh, how disadvantaged most people were when it came to money. And now, you know, again, you look back and I, I kind of see like that wealth gap has gotten wider and wider to the, you know, this day. Like I, I don't think there's been really any meaningful improvement in terms of taking those who have very little and helping them achieve more. Um, instead, it's been like getting the, the sort of cliche thing, rich get richer. And uh, so I've spent like the last now 17, 18 years starting different ventures, all really like that was the common thread was like, I, I was really frustrated with the fact that there wasn't more accessibility to great advice. And each kind of venture along the way, I was learning how to be more impactful there. And the very first business I started on my own, um, I was 22 and it was like a, a website that allowed people with a 401k to to answer a couple questions about like their risk and their like goals and then where they worked so I could understand what their investment options were and then the system would automatically recommend a 401k allocation right? so that was my, my first foray and it was really 
like um, a great learning experience because I um, I thought it was all about if I could build a less sort of a quantitative asset management system like that was the secret sauce if everyone had that the whole world would be like better off right but I learned that there's like a really big disconnect between like the adoption person with a 401k and like understanding a black box that manages their money and there was just tons of things too like how do you build a website like I was a I was a pretty good on a computer but I didn't build front-end websites and I didn't know anything about like search engine optimization and back then this was like before Google was really even a very big company so people kind of forget that like paid advertising and all the things that today a lot of tech companies do, these were, this was before a lot of this was commonly um, done or, or the knowledge of how to do it was there. So I had to learn a lot of like things very early on and like just how to get people's attention to sign up for the service, but it actually worked out really well. Like I got, you know, thousands of people like from all over the country coming through the internet, like to say, hey, I've got this 401k and I need some help with it. Uh, well, that was really a great experience. I also learned what like customer churn was. So that was my first yeah. that, which was most of these customers after seven or eight months, um, they didn't want to pay a monthly subscription. Even if it was like 20 bucks a month, it was sort of like, okay, like you told me what to do once. And like my, my monthly email the last seven months has been, don't change anything. Right. right? And, uh, and it's weird how human behavior was like, they wanted someone to tell them like they had like work to do every month or something when really this right. wasn't. And you were so, just trying to make it as simple yeah. as possible. So that was like, you know, how I got into it. And then it's been a bunch of stuff since then. So, right. But it's interesting because at that phase, it was direct-to-consumer mainly. Totally but you've right. spent a ton of time now on sort of the B2B side. So talk about why maybe you've pursued sort of the latter um, in the more recent years and sort of what you think the advantages are there. Sure, yeah. So, so, um, so, so the, the, the 401k advice website was a cool experience. Um, but what I found is when, when customers would churn out, I'd ask them why. And almost always it was, look, if you just did this for me, like I would pay you even more money, but like I, I don't have the five minutes a month to like read this email and implement any changes if they were if there were any that were suggested. And so that's what made me think, well, what if I just became a financial planner and I just worked with these people? So at the time, you know, there wasn't there wasn't a lot of information around like how do you even start a financial planning company? You know, I, I knew that I didn't really want to work for anyone at that time. So I I had gotten sort of addicted to being an entrepreneur um, from that first venture. But it was a uh, Quite a journey. You know, it was 2004 when I finally registered my first, what's called a registered investment advisor. Back then, there were only a few thousand in the entire country. It wasn't that common, right? There might have been a million financial people, but very few. Again, a few thousand that were in this like RIA universe. Um, but I chose that because after doing research, it was it, I felt like this is the future. Like, this is where your advisor has a fiduciary obligation to work in their client's best interest. They don't work for a big company; they just work for their clients. And it also it very much fit my ideals around entrepreneurship. Like it was designed for people to start and launch their own, at, you know, at the time, most of them were small, very small businesses, like, you know, solopreneurs, so to speak. And so it was a really good learning experience. I actually worked directly with clients for a number of years, um, met people from all over the country. Before like Zoom existed, I was using like uh, Skype back in the day, you know, to like, you know, to communicate with clients. It was, it was, a, it was a really cool kind of era. And as valuable as it was to work with clients, I realized that my ability to um, even like leveraging technology and having a virtual practice, which again, this was before many people had virtual um, service businesses, there was a scale limitation, like working directly to consumers. And, and um, ironically, like around the time that I pivoted out of like direct to consumer is when a lot of what today people call robo advisors were just getting started. Right. And I, I, I looked at those businesses like, boy, they're going to learn the hard way that Customer acquisition is really expensive, and it's going to take a lot longer to achieve scale than they think. It's going to be a lot more expensive to achieve scale, and uh, and so I'm going to choose to go B to B to C. Right? So right around 2010 is when I made the decision that it would be a lot easier if I could work with like an already existing sort of like infrastructure of advisors and just arm them with better tools, um, so they could serve more people. It's a very basic kind of like um, marketplace kind of concept. You know, instead of like one person driving their car around town as a taxi driver, you build a platform, right, that allows right. thousands of drivers to drive their car, and that's obviously called Uber, Lyft nowadays. Um, but we needed something like that for financial advisors, where there was a you know, sort of a technologically driven solution, um, so that they could serve maybe 10x the number of customers. And if we could, like, make it easy for the you know, clients for individual people to find those advisors. So the vision anyway was um, by doing that, we would be able to grow a lot faster, help a lot more people, a lot more efficiently. 
and it turns out I was right. It worked. Um, I built a, you know, a company from scratch, bootstrapped it with very little. Um, I never had outside capital, just my own money, and built it to you know a, a rather significant, at least to me, significant you know company. Um, although it stayed under the radar because I didn't ever take outside funding. Um, and in many ways, I look at like that timing, and I, and what I built was actually bigger than most of the like well-known consumer robo advisors. But it, it stayed again, sort of very much um, unknown, which is which is. And that's Formula Folios. Correct. Yeah, it's a company called Formula Folios. Silly name. I'm, I'm not like always silly naming <laughs> names. I like to think my current company, Altruist, is a cool name. <laughs> very Last cool company, name. A little bit of a tongue twister. Um, but the idea was really simple. Like I, it was all about what if we could apply basic formulas to help people manage their portfolio and sort of automate good behavior. That was the idea, right? So, um, so that's how the name came about. Uh, and then we worked with independent financial advisors um, all around the country and had. You know, hundreds of them um, working with you know, t- you know t- almost a hundred thousand clients now. So it's um, really cool to see like that network effect and how efficient it was. It, it, the total capital invested was a hundred thousand dollars, right? So think about capital efficiency. That's like a, a week, you know, for right. the direct consumer brands, and that's right. all we ever spent on one marketing channel. Yeah, six years, yeah. So so it, was, so it was very efficient. I'd say like for anyone who's thinking like, do they go B two B or B two C? You know, just know like that there's going to be certain amount of capital efficiency or inefficiency in you know, with my business anyway, um, like this B2B2C model is a lot more efficient. Yeah, no, I think it's 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 a recurring theme that we keep hearing about the force multiplier that you can yeah. sort of be on the B2B side. Uh, we had Stephanie Kirkpatrick of Orem come on and say something really similar. She had an impact orientation and was deciding sort of between that fork in the road of do I go direct to consumer or B2B and similarly thought that she could just scale the impact, you know, a lot in the same way. So. I heard in a previous interview when you were talking about formula folios, you said something really interesting that stuck with me, which was you needed to spend those 10 years on that company to be ready to build Altruist. So what did you mean by that? And also, when did you know you were finally ready to start Altruist if you needed that sort of time? Yeah, so the, the, the nerd speak on like, you know, a company like formula folios is that I built all of the technology, or our team built all the technology, sort of nesting on the existing infrastructure of the industry. So, and that existing infrastructure was like the existing custodians and clearing firms and asset management you know, uh, providers, um, and even to some degree, other fintech companies that had pretty antiquated um, architecture and how they, uh, how they operated. Um, so, so we had a lot of like limiting factors. There's tons of friction. Like it didn't matter how well we built our systems. If we were still relying, for example, on like a custodian that required paper, like physical paper to open an account or to you know, um, send a distribution to a client. These are like really core basic enemies of scale. Like you cannot um, brute force your way through like that type of inefficiency. And so the thing that also that you start to realize is like your, your costs, like you, you, you have this vision, at least I did, where I thought, well, once we get past a billion dollars, like then we'll have some real scale. It didn't come at a billion. Two billion will have real scale. Didn't come into five billion. There'll be real scale. There's not any scale achieved at five billion dollars in the wealth management space. So, um, contrary to what people might think, I mean, and when I say by real scale, meaning like your cost of goods sold and your like core operating expenses are just going to be a certain amount. It's going to make your your end product right that you're giving to a customer pretty expensive. Right. And on top of that, like it's a crappy experience. Like you know, you're dealing with like a really disconnected sort of you know experience of opening accounts, funding accounts, trading accounts even servicing clients like with their needs, um, like you're dealing with so many different parties, uh, whether right. tech vendors or, or again, like kind of clearing custody type vendors. And so I needed like five years of smashing my head against the wall, trying to like- On all of those individual old, puzzle pieces, yeah. yeah. Um, until I finally was like, someone has to fix this, the infrastructure layer. That's the real challenge. And it's also the biggest opportunity. And it's partly why no one had ever done it before. You know, going into a market and saying, okay, there's, Basically today, two primary companies, when we started Altruist, there was three that offer like the core kind of infrastructure, the custody layer for financial advisors. They have like 80 plus percent market share and both those two companies are $100 billion plus companies, right? So- um, They're taking on giants. Yeah, right, like this is not normally like a, you don't like, hey, two kids in a garage at Stanford, like are solving it, like that's not, you can't go to war like that, like you're gonna fail really, really miserably. So. So I knew that there was a huge opportunity to do something really impactful, but it was going to be a ton of work. And, I, and, and you know, I needed some conditioning. Like one, 
to get so frustrated that I was willing to like go take the risk and do it. Um, but I also had to just better understand like all the intricate details of all these disconnected pieces and how they would work best together. And that's what started in September of 2018 um, with Altruism. There you go. So pr perfect segue, you know, with much anticipation, I want to get to the root of, you know, the topic today, which is altruists. So can you just give us the one minute elevator pitch on why altruists exists and who ultimately you're serving? Yeah, I mean, the super short version is that right now it's really hard to get access to a financial advisor, a good one. Um, so the vast majority of people, right, we've got 100 million plus people that do not have a financial advisor in the United States. And most of them don't have access largely because either they don't have enough money to qualify for one or they don't even know where to find them, which is really sad. And so with Altruist, we're making financial advice a lot more accessible. We've made all those points of friction, right, that make it really hard for advisors to have scale and really eliminated those. So advisors can serve large numbers of people with all sorts of levels of wealth really, really efficiently and easily. A lot of that technology also makes financial advisors better at their job. So sort of by augmenting best behaviors um, with technology, we can ensure that the things that matter most to outcomes for investors are automatically kind of on the advisor's radar so they can implement them very easily. And then ultimately, you know, as we think really, really big picture, I think we'll be able to connect consumers and advisors together, right? So we haven't solved that yet. Still working on a lot of the technology, but like the vision is just make advice better, more affordable and accessible to everybody. But you underlying in this is that you really believe in the human element. So in this era of, you know, robo-advisors, you're getting a lot of buzz. We've already mentioned them a little bit. When do you think the human element is necessary? As soon as possible, right? Like we live in an era where there are um, people making decisions with their money based on things they hear on TikTok, which are maybe sometimes okay, but many times definitely not okay. And, you know, and, and I pick on TikTok. It could be Instagram, it could be YouTube. Yeah. Like, you pick your media. Influencers it's, have gone exactly. a little wild. It's, it's yep. a bit bonkers, you know. So I think... Uh, as soon as we're able to start getting foundational financial education into our, our lives, like the better off we're going to be long-term. You know, we had a, a, a good chat with Bill McNabb while we were in Philadelphia from Vanguard and also uh, from a guest here who was uh, so lovely to make an introduction. Uh, but he made a comment and I wanted to say, hey, Bill, I'm pretty sure I heard that from Albert Einstein, but he said, you know, compound interest is like the greatest thing, like, you know, the most powerful thing in the, in the universe. And um, that's like Wharton's, you know, secondary motto. Yeah. I feel like that's what all we learn here. If we, if we think about like the value of compound, like that means time matters. So like, as soon as we can, like it, this idea that people should have to figure this shit out on their own. And then someday when they have money, they can go hire somebody. That's crazy. Like we need to get access to advice as early in people's lives as we can. Um, this will allow people to make good choices. If you make good choices, um, the outcome can increase by orders of magnitude, right? And like people don't always realize how big of a difference one or two or three percent makes in an additional five to ten years. Like it is such a huge amount of impact. Um, anyone who's you know student at Wharton, I'm sure, can do that probably like you know on the back of their hand um, or their head. Um, but it's like you know for many people millions of dollars of difference in their lives if they just get again that little extra compound return and that extra time. So. As soon as possible is a short answer. Um, and then in terms of like, you know, are there other tools that are great? Absolutely. Like some people I think will find that doing some things on their own is a great way for them to learn some foundational knowledge. But if you can, like I have a, a son who's a college student myself and it's crazy. He reached out to me this week and he goes, hey, dad, can I get an hour on your calendar to talk about crypto? I want to start wow. trading on Coinbase. And I'm like, Son, absolutely. Let's get, let's get like a five-hour session. Yeah, you know? let's not, so let's not limit ourselves. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like that's a really important thing for us to right. have a conversation on, right? But, um, but so think these conversations are coming up sooner and people don't have like, uh, everyone doesn't have a dad that like runs a fintech company that they can call on and ask for an hour or more or whatever of their time. So, so it's really important that, that people um, have a degree of comfort and confidence to like, no, hey, I can go to this place, get access to people that are highly relatable uh, and can give me kind of, you know, sort of these nudges in the right direction. So I don't make really bad choices, learn the hard way, waste five to 10 years and, you know, um, have a really hard time letting compounding work in their favor. Right, so you believe in the financial advisor as that sort of gatekeeper, a filterer, a confidant, someone you can trust. Yeah, I mean, I think, so first I should say like, you know, not all financial advisors are all that good. Like there's plenty of- um, uh, That's abundantly clear on your website. Yeah. I think that you make that comment a couple times. Like if anyone's had that friend, you know, that um, graduates from college and then wants to sell you some insurance, you know, um, when you're like 22 years old, like that's a great example of how not to do financial um, services young. 
unless you have a really good need, but I would say most like 22-year-old or 24-year-old college grads are probably not in need of a whole life insurance policy um, right out of the gates. But that aside, so good financial advice, that is like an incredible cheat code for achieving a lot in life, um, whether it's like financial flexibility, freedom, ability to help family, your community. And so access to good advice is what matters. Now, is it humans always that deliver good advice? Not always, and some of them don't. So if we can help empower sort of the best advisors, it's why we still, to this day, you know, um, Altrift only works for registered investment advisors. That same sort of epiphany I had in 2004, that this just feels right. This feels like where I would want to get help. This is where I would want my parents to go get help. This is where I'd want my friends to go get help with their money. So how do we take this ecosystem of advisors and help it grow? You know, um, today there's around 35,000 of those firms, about 100 or so thousand people that work at those firms. Um, So it's grown a lot in the last 15 years, uh, but it needs to grow a lot more. We could use hundreds of thousands of these like unique kind of um, firms that can serve clients with all sorts of very unique, like very, in many cases, highly individualized, very specific life kind of questions, financial questions that you can't codify, right? Like you can't, like I've, I, I know it's because I've done this before where you've like trying to write like these algorithms that automatically right. provide um, highly personalized advice. And like, there's like a point at which I think uh, at the SALT conference, I, I can't remember who, uh, who said this, but it's something that like the most advanced version of AI, I, I would have used what they said, I think it was like kind of like not super politically correct, but was still not very smart basically. Right. And so if we think that, that there's no value in like a human being able to um, with technology deliver this like really unique personalized advice like i think we're fooling ourselves like technology can do a lot of great things but if we have which we all do like really unique personal things that are happening in our lives that sometimes you just need someone to talk to and a chat bot is not the solution right like having that human can really help now that human needs to have incredible technology yeah and, and scale skill yeah um, so that they can then implement that advice at scale really efficiently, right? Really low cost so that the customer can actually achieve more with their money. Right. Um, but it's that marriage that it's sort of like, you know, you know, very much like augmented human relationship with great technology that has the biggest influence to help like people with real problems. Um, right. Just like um, archetypes, right? Which is what happens when you deal with um, computers. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that's why they call it personal finance yeah. because it is... <laughs> Just that, it's very personal. So you're targeting these RIAs, these registered investment advisors, and bringing it back to Altruist, talk to us about, I'm an RIA, but I'm not a current Altruist user. Yeah, I'm, I'm clearly in the wrong, but also what is the infrastructure and the service partners that I need to get started? What are the critical components? Where are you going to get those if not at Altruist? And I know the custodian's a big component of that, so maybe you could double click into that too. Yeah, so um, if we think about, like, most advice relationships start off as just advice. So it doesn't have a whole lot to do with money initially. It's just, a, a, you know, a, an advisor getting to know and understand their client, what they're trying to accomplish with their lives, and in some degrees, like, taking inventory of, like, well, where are you right now relative to where you want to be? So um, so starting there, um, it's a pretty crappy experience. Like, if, if someone has never done this, like, worked with a financial advisor, I think most would agree that it's a really it feels really outdated. Like it's usually like reams of paper, best case scenario, like there's advisors that I think they think they're being technologically savvy by offering things like type form. Like, hey, use this type form. Like that's a really bad idea too, <laughs> to fill out all of your information, you know, with me and so I can uh, do a plan for you. But um, so, so there's a lot of opportunities to just start the relationship um, in a way that's like more secure, allows both information and financial information and like personal values like to be shared in a digital manner this will allow advisors to do better work because they have access to the right information as early as they can now um, as far as like the things that altruist is really focused on it's removing like these frictional barriers of onboarding new clients so it could be like whether it's like data intake opening of accounts funding of accounts these are things that until we came around, really, there was very few digital solutions. And the digital solutions were more like DocuSign, which is a pretty crappy experience in finance most of the time. And so how could we create an experience that feels a lot more like um, if anyone's open an account on any leading like personal finance app, you know, so if it's Coinbase, it's Robinhood, it's Betterment, whomever. Um, these experiences are fast, they're easy, 
pull out your phone in minutes, your accounts are open. With advisors, it could be like hours of doing paperwork. And like they still use um, those little stickies that you put on the like sign here. Oh no. And sometimes they forget the spots, right? <laughs> you just send the paperwork back with FedEx envelopes and stuff. I mean, so uh, it sounds really silly, but like there's a lot of like really basic things that those were the first things we had to tackle. Like how can we make it incredibly easy for an advisor to work just onboarding, like working with new clients. Once they have a client, then there's like implementing of their advice, right? So that planning work and the, the things that the human can do better oftentimes with the assistance of technology than they could um, without it, um, has to then be implemented. So this is where you fund your accounts, whether it's linking to a bank. And again, if we're, um, a lot of young people are so used to it that they forget that. Like, that was one hard. Parents and others, like they have never used the Plaid, you know, API to connect their bank to something they've never used, um, you know, something like, uh, you know, Cash App or Venmo, right, to easily send money. So a big chunk of people are still living in a world where, like, they write physical checks and they keep the ledger. And, yeah. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a very strange kind of, you know, world. But that's actually how it is mostly in the United States. So we're trying to make that, again, like, heavily digitize it, but make it super user-friendly and also designed for B2B2C. So it's easy for the advisor to assist whenever you need that human element. You're not just trying to figure it out on your phone with no real human help. And then the actual investing, right? Like, investing only recently did custodians that worked with financial advisors eliminate things like commissions. Commissions have been a really bad idea for a long time, but it used to be that, you know, you pay seven or $10 per trade. And that was only a mirage, right? That was to make you believe that that's what the cost was. Meanwhile, you know, the companies are making all their money from the cash in your account, earning net interest, the payment for order flow, like selling your trades, right, to liquidity providers selling your positions to short sellers and making sort of a, uh, a margin sort of right. own, uh, rate. So like there's, and I could go on, like there's like hundreds of little kind of bizarre ways that people wouldn't maybe believe that that's how these firms make money because the commercials would be like trade online equities for seven bucks. It's like, that's totally just to make you believe that's the actual cost, right? Right. The cost. So, right. um, so we try to make sure that like all of those things are also super frictionless, right? Very, very low cost. We do all fractional shares, um, which allows people again at any level of wealth to get access to sophisticated asset management, um, whether they have five dollars or five million or fifty million. Everything's very modular. An advisor can run their entire business right just on their computer, a few minutes a day actually, so they can spend the bulk of their time doing the personal things with um, clients, yeah, right, versus like doing data entry or following up on the phone with like, where did this check go or did this money get to there? So these are things that, which again, I think foundationally don't seem all that like earth shattering, but they're really important. That's why I said like the infrastructure layer was the first really critical layer that we had to focus on at Altruist to help advisors be able to do their best work. And, and the future is like, you know, very, like there's so much more to do. Like, I think there are a lot of ways to, to use technology to make the experience much more personalized. If we think about what, allows people to get better returns with their money. So it's it's a it, like a topic that could be debated like are returns really important? Like, of course returns are important. Like we just talked about like how compound interest is so valuable. Um, but compound interest at 1% a year isn't all that valuable. But compound interest between the difference between 8% and 9% is very valuable, right? So that 1% matters a lot as we sort of stack it on right. natural efficiency of of uh, of capital markets. So how do we help advisors deliver that extra 1%? And there's a lot of things that we can do there, most of it revolving around like personalizing the investment journey. Like when people are more engaged in their own financial life, like how did they arrive at the things that they own, they're more likely to stay committed to those. And those commitments, so that ability to sustain market steps and flows is going to allow people to achieve a lot better returns. So we, we know this because there's hundreds of years of history, like huge, large data studies around like what really influences returns. And it's going to be the things like, Let's minimize taxes. Let's minimize, you know, kind of poor behavior like selling when you shouldn't and buying when you shouldn't. Chasing trends and fads that really are not like, rooted in like long-term viable sort of high efficacy uh, investment standards. So, um, so a lot of like our work, um, once somebody becomes a user, is all about that. How do you make advice better, right? And and we can use technology to automate a lot of really good behaviors to focus on like. Is it possible? And if so, like, how do we get that extra 1% for every single investor, no matter how little or how much they have? So RIAs that listen to this episode will know that they should be checking out Altruist. But outside of that, how do RIAs find you? And sort of where have you seen the best, you know, penetration so far in terms of, you know, maybe a typical RIA profile or your target segment? So interestingly, we've been able to develop like a really loyal kind of grassroots following. I think that I certainly can go long-winded 
I think I could probably do a better job of condensing our message into a very simple, like, you know, uh, message for advisors. But, um, but as they hear about the things like these, like when someone is an advisor, look, they know these problems. Like they're sitting there dealing with them every day, like trying to connect like seven different things to a tech stack, you know, paying a whole bunch of money for software that does very little for them and having to defend in some cases their fees because they have to charge a lot or say clients have to have a certain minimum because they just have limited capacity. So they all know, like, it's not like hard for us to get advisors' attention because all of them are dealing with these problems. Um, again, I dealt with it at scale at a multi-billion dollar firm before before starting Ultra. So, so fortunately, we haven't had to do a lot of like sales activities or a ton of marketing activities. Once people hear about the sort of mission that we're under, like, again, an RIA by default, like they typically have a bias to always do what's best for their clients. When they realize that there's sort of this ecosystem of tools they've been forced to use to try to deliver that what's best for my client, you know, sort of mission. They realize like that they're, they're fighting a losing battle. Like they're like showing up to a, you know, whatever gunfight with a you know, knife, like it doesn't right. work very well. So what we're doing is really allowing people to do what they've always wanted to do. It's like the easiest thing in the world actually to sell. Um, and so we've, we've been able to, you know, largely have advisors be the like advocates that share the message with others. So that's been super powerful. And then um, our message is re- highly relevant, I think, to like the next generation of uh, leaders in finance. You know, and not, not, not everybody's young. I shouldn't like, like pigeonhole like our users as like they're all young. They're not. They're people of all different ages. But like they're people who very much believe in the long-term positive changes that can happen in, in finance. And they're people who are really tired of the old ways of doing things. And, you know, I realize I'm very, I'm, I'm, I'm getting old myself, so I, I can say this, and it's like not derogatory, but, you know, financial advice was an old white man business for a long time. And I think a lot of people are ready to see that change and make it more accessible. So there's more people who are interested in launching and building firms and they can serve a more broad segment of clients, not just other primarily old, rich white people or something right. like that, right? So the timing is really, really, I think, um, important for companies like Altruist to be successful. And, and again, the the advisor community, like this is, I think, been boiling up for like a long time. It's like ready to blow and where people are like really eager to see change um, and good change, like change that's better for customers, but also change that like makes the industry a little bit, um, you know, more open and inviting, um, you know, to people from a lot of different backgrounds. And we make that very much possible because we don't have any minimums. People can launch a firm with an idea, right? Um, And so it's really cool to be part of that innovation you know, sort of uh, innovator's dilemma where we're eliminating part of that, right? Like that, that dilemma that is. So, so I do feel like there's, there's uh, a lot of reasons why we haven't had to do a lot of marketing yet. We'll see like as we go forward, but certainly like advisors have been our biggest advocates. Um, social media has been very powerful for us. I think, you know, most companies that scale quickly, uh, they have to be able to do those two things, like connect at a very almost like tribe-like level with their users and then leverage social media to reach a lot of people very quickly and very efficiently to follow on our theme of efficiency. There you go. Well, you know, I you talked about, you know, maybe you don't have to necessarily do marketing, but Ultras does do a lot of really interesting things on the content side to sort of spur the activity around that community. So one of those being your human advisor podcast. So would love to hear a little bit more about that. I know you're on this coast because you're doing a little bit of an East Coast tour for that. So what was the genesis and sort of origin story around sharing some of those stories? Yeah, well, I one, thank you for bringing that up. It's obviously, you know, everyone that's watched this can't tell, but like our whole team is right here, right? That's doing So they're with us, but um, I'll, so I'll be very flattering. But the genesis was in the very early days, as I was starting to think about building at Altruist, uh, you know, sort of like the early fables not often talked about, but we, um, I knew I had my opinions, but like I thought, you know, I really should talk to some advisors, but I didn't want to like just talk to the same advisors. I didn't want to talk to other people that were just like me, in other words. I wanted to talk to what I consider to be like the next generation, like great advisors. There just so happened to be, there was a, an article that came out in Financial Advisor Magazine, and it was like something effective like, you know, 10 advisors to watch. And so I just cold solicited all of them on LinkedIn one day. And so I'd love to talk to them, you know, and, and just hear a little bit more about like, and, and they were really, the, the stories were awesome, by the way. It was like people serving underserved communities, like people that were in underrepresented groups themselves and started a firm from scratch because there was no place necessarily for them, like within like the existing, you know, major financial firms of Wall Street and so forth. So these people were super inspiring. And as I talked to them, I kept thinking like, we need to hear more of these stories because I think part of what people think 
I know um, it's not uncommon when people think about oh, hiring a financial advisor, they'll be like, oh, you mean like someone who works at Merrill Lynch or Wells Fargo or Edward Jones or whatever. And I'm like, no, <laughs> actually the polar opposite, everything not those right. things, right? Um, the RA community is cool. Like you can find um, advisors that, you know, I, I talked to an advisor um, recently and I won't say their name to spare anybody like hounding them or something, but they, they're building a firm that the entire firm, everything about it is all based on vegan principles, right? So not just huh. vegan, like, you know, like life, like, like diet, diet, right? But like actually like same principles that would govern those, but in your investing in your financial life, in your financial planning life, and the founder is amazing and super smart and super talented and awesome. And she's incredible. And I can't wait for the whole world to kind of like see that firm when it launches here soon. But that would never have been possible, right? Like at right. a lot of places, it's very much possible at Altruist. And I think people need to understand, like, if there's something you're really passionate about, there's probably an advisor out there that can help you marry, like, your passion with some really purpose- purposeful financial decisions. When we started the, the, the idea of human advisor, the other thing that was very obvious to me was, like, this idea of, like, wealth gaps, right? Like, how do we make it to where people feel comfortable. Like, again, I use my son as an example. He had no problem reaching out to his dad and asking for some help. Like, most people don't have that. So how do we make it to where there's all these advisors, they look just like you, right? Like, they are the same color, the same, they have the same orientation, they have the same values, they're the same age, right? Like, they, they, they don't have to be wearing, like, stuffy suits. They could have, like, backwards hats and chains and whatever. Like, who cares, right? Like, the, the world is is, I think, finally allowing people to, to have that individuality and, and have it be okay. Finance is typically really late to embrace like anything. Right. Um, but this is something that has to happen really soon so that people can get access to those advisors sooner. So we started the human advisor. It was very much an idea to tell the stories of advisors that had like really interesting backstories that led them to decide to passionately serve a specific group of clients. And it's very much not like usually the people or the type of clients that we would always expect when we think right. finance, broadly speaking. And it's been a ton of fun. So we've done episodes all over the country. We have like the most awesome hosts. Uh, so shout outs to Tyrone Ross, who's our first host, to Sarte Arnway, who hosts now. Awesome, incredible, talented people. Um, and then like just, again, like probably 50 plus advisors now that have been really willing to like let us ask them vulnerable questions about their backstories beyond their financial planning, you know, kind of practice. So that way, hopefully people, as they think about like, is there an advisor out there? Of course there is. Like in in a lot of those people, they are really happy to meet new clients. And so it's a really great way for them to. Yeah, it's a win-win. So it's been a win-win. It's been like really helpful for us to get an idea about what matters to our users, but it also gives our users a way to kind of connect with uh, potential clients. Um, It's been really cool. Yeah, and I can attest, I went on a deep rabbit hole and looked through some of the reviews on the podcast that are very positive and seems like people have been really moved and inspired by some of those stories that you're amplifying. So obviously, as a fellow podcaster, we love just that idea generally of amplifying new and different voices to your point that you might not expect. So you're creating an incredible community. We've talked a lot about sort of the RIA community. I want to talk about other members of your community, which is your investor community, because I'd be remiss not to ask you about your fundraising journey you have some incredible advocates behind you. We talked about Bill McNabb, um, who's been a you know obviously a past guest on our podcast and is probably still in earshot. So I'll ask him high level and easy questions. But um, would be would love to know just what you've learned about the fundraising journey, and and then secondly, what's sort of the best advice that you've gotten from the board that you built? Uh, yeah, so our, our investors and our board are awesome. So Bill McNabb's on our board, um, John Rosenbaum from Insight Partners, and Nick Byme uh, from Venrock, and we're very fortunate to have. Um, Ryan borrows from Vanguard as an observer. So like, this is like the dreamiest group of like people, if you're gonna, ask, you're gonna build the FinTech, like you couldn't ask for better people, you know? You've got incredible sort of like SaaS enterprise scale up investors, um, some of the most important people like in finance um, and, uh, and then some really storied, uh, you know, sort of investment firms like Benrock and Insight. So, and, and then there's others too, like, you know, that, that are worth noting. Um, I was going back to the very beginning, you know, I, so when I started the company, my first call was to Nick Byme at Benrock. Um, and I can say that, you know, not to, to be overly flattering to Nick, uh, but every founder would be lucky to have someone like him at an early stage. Like he, the, the mentorship, it's very lonely sometimes when you're starting an idea. Like today, um, Eltris has about 180 total team members. So 
and a lot of some people I can bounce ideas off from, but in September of 2018, I had zero. Um, and I needed to find someone that believed in like this idea I had for what was possible as a business. Um, and for those like, you know, who maybe are, are watching or listening and they're students, like Altus is actually an incredible business. So I should say that investors, um, when they look at what we're doing, that recipe of like challenge, again, going it's like two major incumbents that are $100 billion companies is also incredibly opportunistic. Talking like super antiquated technology, largely a mostly unhappy like customer base with very few other options, very, very big moat around the space. Like this is a good space. If you have the right investors who are willing to think big, they're going to rally behind ideas like this. So absolutely like we can build a monumentally large successful business. Um, like the economics very much support that. In terms of advice, so uh, like hands down, most important advice anybody's ever going to get, I think, when starting a company is the people you surround yourself with. If your idea is big and you are lucky enough to find some early product market fit before you've had to build the, the business, which, which was kind of our case, then in order for it to scale and be successful, you have to have amazing people. And our people quotient was very simple. I said, okay, like I've got to have like a framework. I can't help like the engineer and me like needing checks and balances. So it was, let's find people that um, are kind. I'm from the Midwest. It's in my nature, like I just don't like being around mean people. So um, everyone had to have like a really high kindness quotient, which basically means like they treat other people the way that they should be treated. Right. Um, we don't have like any room for, you know, um, you know, really arrogant jerks, I guess, you know, so to speak. Uh, the next was um, brilliance, but we define brilliance with like more like, um, like this desire to constantly get better. And that usually means that you're very humble. Um, so we have some people that are extraordinarily smart, bright, like, academically incredibly accomplished, professionally incredibly accomplished. But it's weird, you could sit and spend hours with them and they'd never talk about themselves um, because they're constantly just trying to learn and get better, like just always kind of yearning, yearning for kind of that idea of mastery in, in kind of their domain. Um, and then last was grit. Look, we're a startup. Um, this stuff is hard. Uh, I, early on in the journey, I was on a panel and people were talking about building apps and someone was like, oh yeah, you can build an app for blah, 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 a million dollars or something, and I'm like, that's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like this stuff is really, really hard. And I think I dropped my first like public F-bomb like in that stage that day. But um, because it's, it's really, really hard. And like you have to have people that love doing hard stuff. If it was easy, then there would already be 50 companies in this space doing exactly Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so we had to have people that were willing to look at this and be like, you know, putting a rocket, you know, with whatever, six civilians in space is really hard. Um, and then having it like land itself, like, you know, like safely, like on Earth, like that's... But people who think that way, right? So and are up really, for the challenge. Absolutely. And like, in fact, they would not want to do something if it wasn't going to be hard. And so very much on the early on, like I was very fortunate. I was able to like just build great people and, you know, and then the great people attract more great people. Um, and so uh, it, it's been a really, really, you know, humbling experience. But I will say that there's at least 170 of our 180 people who are way smarter than I am. And like, I think as a founder or even as a manager, go always get people better than you are. Like, I mean, your company's going right. to do much better if you do that. If you have fear and you're always trying to index like someone who you can manage, you know, because they're just not as, I mean, that's a great way to be stuck, right? right. And to stay as a, you know, kind of low velocity company. So our funding rounds was, you know, eight and a half million when we started, which we were very fortunate. I remember the conversation with Nick. Uh, he says, hey, this sounds like a really big idea. How much do you think you'll need? I said, I think $4 million. He said, maybe we should raise six, and we raised eight and a half. Um, and it there you out. go. So we had to raise a lot more. So um, raised another $58 million since then. Our last round was raised, uh, was led by Insight Partners, uh, and that was just a few months ago. And so we've been, again, like really fortunate. Um, I think the business itself um, has to be desirable, or investors won't back it. Like this idea that, like, oh, it's so easy to raise money now, crappy ideas. I mean, look, there are some bad ideas that get funded, for sure. And there's some wildly bad valuations happening. But I think that rather than assume that it's easy and everybody can get funded, like go have a great idea, build an amazing team, take early product market fit, achieve some level of like really rapid early growth. Um, and that's then when you can raise the larger rounds, really then accelerate like the business. And that's kind of where we are today is that that really fun hyper acceleration um, stage, largely made possible by having um, access to great capital partners, both the money, but the people. I mean, like, it's, again, a, a huge, huge advantage to be able to call people like Bill or John or even, like, you know, some of our investors I didn't name that are, like, highly respected people in the industry, Ron Carson and 
know, Steve Lockshin. There's just some really, really um, valuable people who've seen what we're doing and they realize this could be really important and they want to help. Um, so every entrepreneur should you know, be trying to build great people, obviously, but yeah, capital partners are also part of that people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the playbook. I hope listeners are taking notes and sort of following that advice step by step. So we're at basically the bottom of the hour. I have 40 seconds left with you. I'm going to ask you four questions. So you do the math on how many words you can fit into 10 second answers. So, all right, quick, quick fire round. One, were there any other names that you considered naming the altruist company? I know we were talking about names earlier. And what was the worst one, if any? No, this was it. And I was willing to pay any dollar amount to get it. It cost me 25,000 bucks by the altruist.com. Love that. Okay. Moving swiftly on. I think this is fair game because you linked this article on your own personal website, but you did get some accolades a few years ago about not, I think it was not shaving, not showering, and not commuting while you're building Formula Folios, and it was skyrocketing. Have any of those habits stayed? Do you have new time hacks? Yeah, so um, this was pre-pandemic. I was just on the, I was like ahead of the field, but look, I'm a obsessed with efficiency. And so if something is not efficient, I don't do it. And there's a lot of things that people are learning now, like, wow, we can be way more productive if we don't waste all of our time doing all this other nonsense. Right. So um, yeah, I, I've tried a bunch of other weird stuff, but those things still stick. Love that. I mean, the, the, I think the key word of this episode is efficiency. So two more, FinTech, big space. You have talked about a lot of interesting people that you get to work with and you have the pleasure of working with. Who's someone that you admire in FinTech that maybe you don't feel like is well-known? that you wish more people knew about? Oof, wow. Um, well, I had the pleasure of meeting the Brex founders last week. They are incredibly brilliant. And, and Henrik's been on the podcast, yeah. so These we're guys familiar. Are, are, are incredible. And they were introduced to me by Samir Vesaveda, who is a, a company called Vise, which um, is doing some interesting things with AI and asset management. Uh, just celebrated his 21st birthday, so happy birthday. Yes. Happy birthday. Um, so we'll give him a tweet are, shout out. Uh, yeah, look, I only wish that someone would recognize me when I was at those ages, but these people are young, brilliant. They're going to do amazing things. Amazing. And then finally, to cap us off, finish the end of this sentence for me. I will consider financial advice solved in this country when? When everybody has access to a real human personal financial advisor. I, I don't think we could have ended it on a better note. So thank you so much, Jason, for your time. This has been incredible. So much good content. A lot of words of wisdom. We wish you all the best and we'll certainly be following along in the journey. So thanks for being here. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. To show your support, please consider rating the show, leaving us a review, or engaging with us on social media. It meaningfully helps spread the word to more listeners, which helps us continue to source our legendary guests. If you're looking for more content from Wharton FinTech, you can find us on Twitter, Medium, LinkedIn, and Instagram, all at Wharton FinTech. There you'll find interviews, articles, and most importantly, a list of ways to collaborate with us as we continue to analyze and amplify as many vantage points on the industry as we can. As always, we also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Raphael Austria. Signing off, I'm your host, Ali McCluskey, wishing you well.